0: And welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC.
1: Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people.
0: I'm Sethi Kogan.
1: And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. The protests rocking cities across the United States following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis have many Americans asking, how did we get here? To unpack that complicated history and where we go from here, AJC's Melanie Marin Pell turned to Lonnie Bunch, secretary of the Smithsonian Institution and founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. AJC invited Lonnie as part of our Advocacy Anywhere series, Zoom conversations that you can register to watch in real time by going to ajc.org/advocacyanywhere. Just as we expected, Lonnie, who has been a guest on this podcast before, did a masterful job explaining the reality of institutional racism and the impact of civil unrest in this country. Here are portions of that conversation from earlier this week.
2: Our country is facing unprecedented struggles and challenges, and as an organization with a long history of involvement in the civil rights movement, this conversation is particularly important to us. Lonnie, you're a historian, so before turning to the events of today, let's look back. This week marks the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre, where the business district in the heart of the Black community in Tulsa was destroyed, hundreds of people were killed and injured. What can we learn from that dark day, and what were the lasting impacts from that community trauma?
3: Well, thank you for allowing me to be with you today, and I always am appreciative of my dear friend, Alan Rich. Um, I think it's really important to realize that Tulsa was one of those moments where racism destroyed a community. Here was a thriving black downtown of black businesses, but many people who were not African American were concerned about how well they were doing. So they basically rioted, burned the town, destroyed people's lives. And in a way, what this tells us is that first of all, it tells us that America often fails to live up to its stated ideals, and that often those that are hurt the most are people of color. And so what I think we learn so much from Tulsa is two things. One, we learn that there's a resiliency that people have to rebuild their communities, to rebuild their lives, and to basically, even in the darkest moments, people realize that they dream of an America yet to be, and so rather than the Tulsa folks sort of saying it's time to flee, it's America's not going to be fair to us, they said it's time to rebuild, but it's now time for us to continue to challenge to make our country better.
2: Thank you. So, moving to what's happening today and the situation in which we find ourselves today, it has taken 400 years to get to this boiling point. This did not happen overnight, as evidenced by what you just um, your remarks on the Tulsa massacre. We know that there are certain inequities that are essentially baked into the American cake and cannot be fixed by the passage of a new law or a simple policy change, although those are critically important. What are the greatest gaps? This is a big question. But what are the greatest gaps in equity? And while we have made progress to be sure, what is holding us back from more rapid progress on racial justice?
3: Well, I think, first of all, let me answer that big question by continuing to step back historically and to frame this. I mean, I think that, you know, on the one hand, somebody said to me, oh, is this a unique moment? I think there's some unique characteristics. But the reality is, this is something we've seen over and over again, whether it's Tulsa. I mean, I keep, at this moment, I keep hearing the words of Ella Baker, who was an important woman who helped to shape the Civil Rights Movement. And over over 50 years ago, she said, you know, until this country views the death of Black mother sons as important as the death of white mother sons, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. So for me, this is really a moment that is part of a long trajectory of where individuals are destroyed by racism, where the institutional racism increases the number of African-Americans who are in the criminal justice system. In essence, what it strikes me is I could name for you the list of names from Trayvon Martin to Eric Gardner to to George Floyd. But what I think we really need to recognize is that this is a moment to look at some of those inherent inequalities that have shaped this country. I am really struck by the educational gaps, the fact that African-Americans are not graduating college at the levels that I think we'd love to see. I think even when you look at the educational system, What you're struck by is the percentage of African-Americans who are in the K through 12 who don't have access to technology. So they're automatic falling behind. I think I'm struck by the fact that I live in Washington DC, and I can drive a mile from my house and see people who have been left behind. The lack of economic opportunities and what that means to an inner city neighborhood. So for me, it's really about both addressing legally and politically what needs to happen, but also recognizing that without educational opportunity, without the opportunity to really have the life you wanna live based on the jobs you have, we're gonna be back at this moment time and time again.
2: Some might look at you and say, you know, what inequality. Here's this incredibly qualified historian who worked hard, earned his appointment to his position as secretary of the Smithsonian, To some, you are proof. Barack Obama is proof. There are others that are proof that there are no boundaries or issues of access. So what do you say to those who question that? I want to dig into that a little bit deeper.
3: On the one hand, I say don't see the exception as the rule. Um, That in essence, there is no doubt you could make strong arguments, and I do it all the time, that America has changed, even in my lifetime from being a kid that remembers seeing signs that said, you know, white only, to being Secretary of this it's a It's an amazing transformation, I agree. But on the other hand, I think that if you look at the totality of the African American experience, granted there's a growing middle class, um, you don't have the same percentage of people in poverty as you once did. But on the other hand, it is still so much higher than it should be. The percentage of African Americans in prisons is frightening to me. And that what I realize is that I am one left turn away from being George Floyd. That there is a fragility, regardless of who you are, of being African-American that says you can run afoul of the institutional racism that is still strong in this country. So I think that I'm proud that I can point to Barack Obama and say there's possibilities, there's hope, There are examples of people who have really done very well. But I am more worried about those that are left behind, those that are locked in a sense of not believing in the fairness and the possibility of a country. So I am proud if people look at me and say, see, I can do that as well. But I also want people to recognize that there are a lot of people who I know who should have had the same opportunities as I have and who have not and have fallen by the wayside.
2: Thank you. So turning back to the protests of today in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, much attention has also been given to the destruction, to the looting that have followed what have otherwise been peaceful protests around the country. We know the vast majority of protesters are there peacefully and purposefully. And yet these incidents of vandalism and property destruction, among other things, among being just fundamentally wrong and criminal, invite police intervention that can then lead to more confrontation. What is your sense of the dynamic at play here? And help us talk through and work through some of what we're seeing.
3: Well, on the one hand, I think it's important to recognize that protest is the highest form of patriotism. It is the way that people who are voiceless say, here's how I can make a country better. Here's how I can ask a country to address fundamental issues. And we could talk for a long time about the impact of protests. But I think that the challenge for us is to recognize that there are always going to be people who are going to take advantage of an opportunity to loot, to steal, there's some concern I have that there's evidence that white nationalists and others who aren't interested in the actual cause of racial justice are taking advantage of this situation for their own ends. I think it's important, with anything else, and I hope that all the protesters feel this way, that what they're trying to do is one, to remember George Floyd, and two, to point a nation's attention to the possibility, opportunities of change. And my concern is that when people focus on the looters, the breaking of the windows, it actually turns everybody's attention from where it should be.
2: When we look at our history, we know we have so much shared work that, of which we're so proud. AJC is incredibly proud that we funded the landmark research of Kenneth Clark that was the underpinning of the Board of Education decision that showed, his research showed that separate but equal is not in fact equal. So we're, we are incredibly proud of that. Um, there have been many watershed moments where we've stood shoulder to shoulder and we do still, we really need each other. Um, racism still plagues the society. Anti-Semitism still plagues the society. We need to be visible and vocal allies for each other. So you started to answer this question, but I, I wanna ask if you can help us understand a little bit more about what is essential both to rebuilding the black Jewish relationship as you, you began talking about that, but then also how can we be better allies? What is it that we can do to speak about racial justice and inequality in ways that will be heard? Um, And again, I think to your point, speaking as equals, so that we're not seen as tone deaf or as privileged by our black friends and partners, and that it doesn't devolve into the oppression Olympics we sometimes see when communities compare trauma or seem to compare trauma.
3: I'm always struck by when I see right-wing racist, when I see the sort of people who were causing the great pain in Charlottesville, what I realize is, who do they hate? People of color and Jews. So in some ways, the notion ought to be is to recognize we are in the same boat together, that we are in the minds of some, what is wrong with America instead of what was right as America. So I want us to start from a position of we really need each other. We're made better by our collaboration. But I also think it is really then demonstrating that there are these moments where we actually come together as equals. I've been really taken by the variety of things I've seen with AJC talking to different groups, people of color, working with the groups to be able to say, we're trying to understand each other better. And I know it sounds like, you know, a 1960s guy, but I really do think. The interaction of getting to know who we are, what we believe, and really is the foundation for us to move forward. I believe strongly that we as a country need this unity in order to make sure that we have the resources, the creativity, and the resiliency to battle. Because it's something that Alan said when he introduced us, is that often we view this as a sprint rather than a marathon. And one of the things that I think is important to realize is to be able to look back as a historian and say, here's where profound change happened. Here's where tipping points. Here's where moments where Black-Jewish relations made a fundamental difference. Um, I was always struck by the relationship between Black women, white women, and a variety of women coming together to protest Anti-lynching to find, you know, support to get anti-lynching laws. Um, even if that failed, it told me the strength of what happens when people come together.
2: Thank you, and we look forward to continuing to do that with you uh, and with the Black community. I want to turn back to something that we spoke very briefly about before, and we alluded to it a little bit, and that is about the nature of protest and the role that protest has played throughout history. And what is it, in your estimation, that will make this moment and these protests have a lasting impact? What is it that needs to happen in order for this not to just be a flash in the pan, as it were?
3: I think you've you've raised a really crucial point. When you look at the moments that we've had great crises where the country said, oh my god, what is this about? People are coming together and saying, here's the commission report, here's what went wrong, and here's what we can do, and then that goes into a library shelf. What I think needs to happen is, first of all, is to recognize that one of the things that's missing is that these demonstrations, which are amazing around the country, which are driven by social media, but they're still disconnected. I think that the 60s, one of the great strengths of the 60s was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, actually bringing people together to say, Here are the strategic moments that we can accomplish by demonstration and protest. I think Dr. Martin Luther King realized that the key for protest was that it would lead to something else, whether it would lead to legislation, whether it lead to concerns from during the Cold War that America looked bad in the eyes of the rest of the world. So what's missing is the overarching strategy. What's also missing, candidly, is political leadership of all stripes from the highest down to the local level, um, to be able to sort of operationalize, for lack of a better term, this time in our country. And the reason why I am hopeful, not sure I'm optimistic, but I'm hopeful is because when I see the diversity of people who are coming together, it really means that people are beginning to realize that this is an issue that shapes the African-American community but it's an issue that profoundly shapes all of us. And that sense of collective ownership is part of the key to moving forward.
2: Lonnie, I wanna thank you so much for guiding us on this journey with you. Again, I know this is a conversation that we could continue for many, many hours. Uh, we know you're quite busy, so we will keep you for many, many hours, But I want to thank you for this. You've given us quite a bit to think about, quite a bit to chew on, and we look forward to working with you and together alongside you as we continue to try to build the world in which we want to live.
3: Well, thank you for allowing me to be with you today.
0: Isaac Bougie Herzog spent 15 years as a member of Knesset, the last five as the leader of the opposition. In June 2018, he became the chairman of the Jewish Agency for Israel, the pre-state body that founded Israel. In that role, he is responsible for the Jewish Agency's mission, to ensure that every Jewish person feels an unbreakable bond to one another and to Israel, no matter where they live in the world. He joined an AJC Advocacy Anywhere Zoom program this week, where he was interviewed by AJC CEO David Harris. To see all of our upcoming programming on Advocacy Anywhere, head to ajc.org/advocacyanywhere. And now I'll give the floor to David Harris.
4: Hello to all of our viewers around the world, and a special thanks to our guest and a very dear friend of AJC, Isaac, or as his, his friends call him, Bougie Herzog. So, Bougie, since I'm going to call you Bougie, before we get into the real substance, I'm sure many of our viewers want to know the origin of the name Bougie, which, if I'm not mistaken, has a certain French connection.
5: Yes, absolutely, French connection. First of all, thank you, David. It's a true honor to speak for AJC and speak to your audience. Your organization is a very, very unique and important institution in Jewish life, Jewish world, and the state of Israel. I can tell you that the law, that um, gave special status to the uh, Jewish agency and the WZ or the World Zionist Organization in Israel was legislated as, as an outcome of a, a, a deal struck between David Ben-Gurion and the chairman of AJC, Jacob Blaustein in the early 50s. So you know you left your mark on history and you're still doing it today. Thank you very much. Uh, So, Bouji, my mother, actually, people know about my father's lineage, you know, president of Israel, son of the chief rabbi, him and my uncle, Abba Iban, and many other legendary Israelis in the list. But my mother, my mother was born in Egypt on the banks of the Swiss Canal. Her father was chief engineer of the Swiss Canal. And my grandparents were simply fled as refugees from Egypt in 1947, following the a UN resolution of forming a Jewish state and the riots that ensued. So my mother's mother tongue was French. And as a rare breed, I was a cute baby, unlike any other baby. My mother called me Buba in Hebrew and Juju in French, which is Buba, which means doll. And it stuck as bougie and nobody knew it. it was a family secret. Until one day in a major party conference, party convention, thousands of people, Prime Minister El Barak got up on the podium and said, I think Bougie should, I don't know, lead a committee or something. And so everybody turned around who's Bougie. And if you look at the book, uh, Startup Nation, you'll see that it's a familiar way of knowing Israelis like Bibi, Bougie, and Boogie.
4: <laughs> okay so now our audience can all call you Bougie. you're all in on the secret Absolutely. Uh, now more to your bio because if the subject matter is israel diaspora relations you yourself are a bridge you lived in new york if i recall not far from where i'm living and speaking right now on the east side you were at the ramaz school what are your recollections of your years in new york and how did that influence your whole outlook on the unity of the Jewish people and Israel diaspora relations?
5: It had a huge impact on my life, huge. And I think that whoever deals with this issue should experience, if possible, something in living in Jewish communities abroad. So I came as an adolescent. My father was then Israel's ambassador to the United Nations. In those days, you know, it was post Yom Kippur War and uh, my father uh, defended the right of Israel in front of the family of nations in a debate which is heralded until today as one of the greatest speeches of the 20th century, defending Zionism against the resolution equating Zionism with racism. And so the spirit was different, but I was exposed to the uh, pluralistic nature of Jewish life, and I am really grateful to my parents, who had no reservations about it. Meaning, they enabled me. I went to an Orthodox school to Ramaz, a school that which impacted my life tremendously. And the headmaster, Rabbi Haska Lukstein, is a mentor of mine all my life. But it also taught me. I went to many other institutions. I went to Massad, Camp Massad and Camp Ramah, and I went and and went to various other programs. And simply. Uh, spent all my life getting to know what it is to be Jewish abroad, and I must say, in those days there was totally ignorant, you know, a lack of knowledge, ignorant uh, behavior about what Israel is all about, and what is life in Israel. People didn't know, uh, and uh, so there was a different vision of Israel than uh, reality at times. But uh, it did impact my being in the fact that I. I'm adamant about the need to be a bridge between Israel and the Jewish people and to keep this bridge going because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a clear need of the Jewish people to do whatever they can, not to split.
4: So, I want to continue, but I want to be sure that our audience, if you haven't heard the speech of Chaim Herzog of Bougie's father in November 1975, at the time of UN General Assembly Resolution 3379, which was the infamous Zionism is Racism Resolution, I urge you not only to read it, but if possible, to watch it. Because there's drama not just in the words, but in the actions of Uzi's father at the podium of the UN General Assembly. So let's fast forward. Since 2018, you've been chairman of Sahnut of the Jewish Agency. Many people on the call undoubtedly know a lot about SoftNut. I suspect there are some people who don't really know an awful lot about this very storied agency, which I think began in 1929 in Vienna.
5: Is that right? It actually began way before that. Even it before that. Okay. Believe it or not, David, it began 100 years ago with a conference called the Sanremo Conference, of which is a very historic pillar in our right for self-determination in Eretz Israel, because that conference was a conference where they convened all the leaders of the world, post-World War I, headed by Lord Arthur Balfour, the one who gave the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which recognized the right of the Jewish people for a national homeland. And they took that resolution, that letter of uh, of Balfour, and inserted it in the resolutions of the British mandate, which was to be formed in in the land of Israel and Palestine. And this is like uh, the source of our right of self-determination of statehood in Palestine. And in that process, they've agreed that in order to implement The Balfour Declaration, it's a fascinating chapter in history. They must form an entity that will help the Jews deliver this vision. And it took two years for them until they completed it and gave the charter, the mandate to the Brits in 1922, in which they wrote there will be a Jewish agency. Imagine the family of nations decided there will be a Jewish agency. And it will be done with the Zionist movement, with Herzl's movement. And therefore in 1929, after squabbling and quarreling like people in our camp know how to do, they finally agreed on how to form the Jewish agency. And the Jewish agency's charter was to found a Jewish state and it did. And I sit in the room in which David Ben-Gurion sat in and led our nation to independence and sat in even later until 1962 as prime minister. So yes, indeed, it's a very historic organization. Then we were commissioned and we built about 900 villages and towns in Israel. We built the national infrastructure on behalf of the Jewish people. And then, of course, we were commissioned to bring olim, to ingather gather the exiles. And we brought in 4 million olim so far around including 35,000 last year, including 1,200 during the COVID-19 crisis.
4: So let's begin now. It's 2018, you become the chairman of the Jewish Agency. What are the top two or three priorities? We all know as CEOs if you have 20
5: priorities, you have no priorities. The first priority was dealing with the rift. There is an apparent rift or there's a growing disparity between Jews in Israel and Jews in North America. Let me explain. I'm not ignoring Jews all over the world, but we have two main pillar communities in Jewish world. Israel about six and a half million and North America about six and a half million. I call it Jerusalem and Babylon. I go to the ancient history of the two Talmuds which were created in the ancient times between Jerusalem and Babylon. And I say, where's the interaction? between current Jerusalem and Babylon. Now there's enormous interaction. Don't get me wrong. I think that as opposed to the notion that there's an irreversible rift, I beg to differ. I think there's a lot of love of Israel, love of Israel, and there's a lot of connections and enormous amount of intertwining connections. But we also know that there are strong undercurrents of diversity and change. And I say outright, and I said it definitely up to the COVID, that there is lack of knowledge, total lack of knowledge on behalf of Israelis as to what it is to be Jewish abroad, and there is an enormous lack of knowledge by world jury, especially North American jury, about what Israel is all about. So what I've done since going into office, I've done whatever I can to lower the rift or the tension or the differences by both initiating huge programs to educate Israelis including all schools in Israel on what it is to be Jewish abroad or diaspora Jewry lessons, including going to the most extreme rabbis of all groups in Israel and speaking to them directly in four eyes. And I found a lot of admission of lack of knowledge and willingness to know more. And the same I did by crisscrossing the entire world, especially communities in North America, and telling them, guys, you don't know enough, you don't know much about Israel. Now I'm aware about the issues of unaffiliated and people who have frustrations and the political divide, which looms all over, all over it. We know it, but I tell everybody, we must think way beyond the political divide and because we have a huge strategic goal of maintaining our nation. The second challenge erupted as soon as I went in and you are very much aware of it because you were dealing with it yourself, is unfortunately the growing hate of Jews or let's say the growing symptoms of hate of Jews, because hate of Jews was always there, anti-Semitism and hate of Jews, and especially, you know, in light of Pittsburgh and what ensued, and you know, you see it even today. And that's a major challenge because that impacts everybody's lives. And we say, you know, I'm challenged on this in Israel. Do you think that it's only Aliyah's the solution? And I say Aliyah is a very important metaphysical part of our being, but, we advocate that every Jew has the full right to live and enjoy his or her practicing ability as Jews in whichever form and manner, wherever they want.
4: You said another of your challenges was the growing anti-Semitism around the world. Are you seeing Aliyah principally driven by push factors, antisemitism, economic distress, pull factors, Zionism, fulfillment of a dream, or a combination of both, and... What are the principal countries driving this today?
5: Okay, it's a combination of both, because the, the pull factor is that, it, you know, when you have a, let's take a community like Italy, you know what, because they're willing that we speak about them. So from day one, Italy, the Italian Jewish community literally collapsed. It has 20,000 Jews in 22 communities with, with historical names in Judaism, like Venice, Livorno and Genoa and others. And clearly, when I spoke to the leadership of the community from day one, I never heard such devastating description of what a community went through. We even had a head start by Israelis where we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars by the Israeli public through the community in Italy. Way and above, our loan fund, which we had established to assist Jewish communities all over the world, which is in operation, has already distributed $7 million and the overwhelming demand, by the way, of of issues that are on the table. So in this respect, we found out that the community needs assistance and help. There are communities that approach us to assist them, and what they do on Shavuot in the holiday feast of Pentecost with respect to uh, social distancing. I mean, communities were devastating and turned to Israel for assistance. So you can say it's a... Push factor, meaning, okay, life is better there, or a pull factor, because we see on social networks clearly a rise in anti Semitic rhetoric, including vandalizing synagogues and other events all over the world. And we are all aware of it. You're definitely aware.
4: So, Pushy, if you met a young American Jew, for example, and I think many of us on this call know such young American Jews who essentially say, Israel means nothing to me, it's far away. I have no connection to Israel. What would be your short speech to that young person about why Israel should matter to this young person 5,000 miles away today? Why?
5: Well, so that's a beautiful question because when I I meet many people who were struck by little, you know, enkindling, all of a sudden, when they landed here, they felt at home. It's something inexplicable. But all in all, I would say that, you know, we are the nation state of the Jewish people. We are... A fountain of strength and resilience and culture and knowledge of the Jewish people. Yes, we have many issues, many problems, many challenges, many things to debate, but you would feel at home. It's the state of the Jews and any Jew is welcome here to be part and parcel of this saga, or at least feel that he has or she has a safe haven to be there at any given moment. And I think this gives a sense of confidence and relaxation for people, even if they have dual citizenship, or even if they have just getting to know the country, they all of a sudden they see that this is their land, this is their place to be around the world if need be or if they want to be.
4: So I I want to express huge thanks to Bougie for taking the time and I think for helping to widen and deepen that bridge that must remain between Israel and the diaspora, especially Israel and American Jewry. We at AJC have always been guided by three core principles. Buzi mentioned one, Achavat Israel, love of Israel. The second is Am Echad, one people. We are one people. We may express our Jewish identity in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. That's also inherent to who we are. But at the end of the day, we're one people. And the notion of Ko Yisrael HaRavim Zev that we are all responsible one for the other. I think you saw all of this expressed by Bougie from start to finish today, by all the work of the Jewish Agency, the Sohnut, and why we at AJC cherish this partnership with the Jewish Agency, because we have so many, so many pressing and overlapping goals. So thank you to you, Bougie, for being with us, being our partner and friend. Thank you
5: for hosting me. It was a huge pleasure, really a huge pleasure and honor.
0: Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Julie Raymond, AJC Deputy Director of Policy and Diplomatic Affairs. Julie, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about?
6: Steffi, we're talking about racism. How could we be talking about anything else? But because it's Shabbat, and because frankly, I think we all need it, I want to talk about the light at the end of the tunnel and some of the good things that are in fact happening. You may know that this week is the anniversary of the Congressional Caucus on Black-Jewish Relations, which was launched on AJC's Global Forum stage one year ago. This caucus, the brainchild of Detroit Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, started really small. Just her, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, John Lewis, the civil rights icon, Lee Zeldin, and Will Hurd. Now, there are more than 50 Black and Jewish members of Congress from both sides of the aisle in the caucus. The caucus was started in recognition of the rift between Blacks and Jews. While the communities were intertwined for so many years, walking arm in arm, especially during the civil rights movement, in more recent years, a fissure has emerged. This mission of reuniting Blacks and Jews and healing the rift remains primary to the caucus. And it's important. I know you spoke with Lonnie Bunch earlier, and he has said it time and time again, this is too difficult a time for Blacks and Jews to be separated. We at AJC are working hard to make sure that our communities are not separate and the caucus is doing the same. But what's really amazing now, in this moment, is that the bipartisan caucus is creating opportunities for much-needed conversations, not just between Blacks and Jews, but between Democrats and Republicans about the issue of race. The caucus put out a statement this week that said, in part, the death of George Floyd is nothing less than a modern-day lynching Our country cannot achieve the values of justice for all until we address the structural inequality and ongoing racism that has long plagued this country." Now, this may read like one of a million anti-racist statements in your Twitter feed, and don't get me wrong, we should celebrate each and every one of those statements. But it is huge when you remember that these are words being endorsed by Republicans and Democrats alike. And it's not just a one-and-done statement. Will Hurd, one of the caucus co-chairs and the only African-American Republican in the House, was marching in the protests in Houston, doing what Abraham Joshua Heschel called praying with his feet. Lee Zeldin, another caucus co-chair, and one of just two Jewish Republicans in Congress tweeted, the whole country must be united in peacefully standing for justice for George Floyd and his loved ones. The caucus statement about George Floyd's tragic killing outlines several tangible steps that need to be taken to address systematic racism. They say, we need an American public that is educated on the legacy of slavery, racism, lynching, and all forms of injustice in this country. They go on to demand that our justice system treat all people the same. The caucus also recently endorsed the No Hate Act, which is an AJC advocacy priority. This bipartisan bill would improve hate crimes reporting with grants to empower state and local governments to train law enforcement, create reporting hotlines, direct resources to minority communities, and conduct public educational forums. In exchange for federal funds, agencies would be required to submit hate crimes data to the FBI, because currently reporting is voluntary, not mandatory. So we really have no idea of the state of hate in our country. The No Hate Act offers assurances to minority communities that concerns about their safety are counted on a national scale, that they are counted. The No Hate Act was recently passed by the House in the Heroes Act Coronavirus Stimulus Package, and AJC is working hard to make sure that it passes both chambers and gets to the president's desk. At a time of really great division amongst people and politicians, this caucus is modeling unity and healing and pushing real concrete actions to make the changes that our country desperately needs to see. It is those changes and that leadership that I'll be talking about at my Shabbat table. Manya, what are you talking about?
1: Well, Julie, I really do appreciate that uh, light at the end of the tunnel because I have been overwhelmed this week, really overwhelmed with grief. The constant bickering on social media, the pictures of the destruction, the memories of outrage over Rodney King and Trayvon Martin, the reminder that this keeps happening and nothing seems to change. It has become painfully clear to me that until we as a nation confront our evil past in the way Germany eventually did and try to make amends by fixing our very broken system, I just don't see an end to this. There is so much work left for us to do if we could just get a moment when we're not so overwhelmed with grief. So there's not much to say at our Shabbat table. Well, there's not much to say except their names. A litany of victims whose lives still matter. Ahmad Arbery, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, Eric Garner, Philandro Castile, Alton Sterling, Laquan McDonald. As you know, the list goes on and on and on. So at our Shabbat table this week, we're going to light Shabbat candles and we're going to say their names and we're going to hope people will stop shouting at each other and just listen. But thank you, Julie, for reminding us that there is a way to get this work done. Sefi? What will you be talking about?
0: Well, I was thinking this week of an old Hasidic story. Bear with me. Reb Simcha Bunim of Peshischa, the 18th century Hasidic master, used to tell his students to keep two slips of paper in their pockets. On one, you should write the words from Genesis, Bishvili nivra for my sake the world was created. And on the other, a teaching from the Talmud, Anochi afar Efer. I... And but dust and ash. The idea, according to the story, is that when you feel depressed, you should reach into that first pocket and pull out that first slip of paper. The reminder that the world was created for you couldn't help but lift your spirits. And when you get arrogant, you should reach into the other pocket to be reminded that you are nothing but dust and ash. I was thinking about this story this week because the idea behind Rib Simcha Bonham's advice about the two slips of paper is that each of those verses apply to all of us. I was thinking about this story this week because what right does any one of us have then in God's eyes to kill someone when we are but dust and ash and they, they are the reason why God himself created the world. Now, that may seem facile to some of you. We as a society have vested in some people the legitimate use of force, but we as a society cannot change the immutable belief that human beings were created, as it is also written in Genesis, B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. Trayvon Martin was created in the image of God. For his sake, the world was created. Eric Garner was created in the image of God. For his sake, the world was created. Michael Brown was created in the image of God for his sake. The world was created. Breonna Taylor was created in the image of God for her sake. The world was created. Ahmaud Arbery was created in the image of God for his sake. The world was created. George Floyd was created in the image of God for his sake. The world was created. May their memories be a blessing and an inspiration to all of us who, after all, are nothing but dust and ashes, to do whatever we can possibly do to fix the terrible evil in our society. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.
1: Shabbat shalom. Thank you.
0: You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us.
1: Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.